Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My guest and his co-author may change your mind about the importance of hunting. Jan Desard writes books and articles about the changing family, race relations, environmental policy, hunting ethics, and wildlife. Jan Desard was born in Duluth, Minnesota, and received an MA and PhD in sociology from the University of Chicago. He taught at UC Berkeley, then joined the faculty at Amherst College. He retired in 2015 and lives in Chico. He is co-author with Mary Zeiss Strang of A Cultural History of Hunting from Stone Age Hunter-Gatherers to Today's Sports Hunters. Jan Desard, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I was saying that your book is from Stone Age hunter-gatherers. So um, I was interested in uh, the Stone Age artwork because Uh I think most of us have seen these cave paintings and say, oh, how primitive. And I was shocked when I read some of the things in your book. I thought, good grief, they're not so primitive after all. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, they're ancient, but they're not primitive. It, 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 and, and one of the interesting things, one of the frustrating things about writing this book is that in the last several years, while this book was in progress, uh, there's just been an explosion of discoveries of even older paintings, in some ways very similar, representing animals, sometimes representing human figures with animal heads, and some animals with human heads. I mean, so the, clearly suggesting that the... That, that, our, our ancient direct ancestors uh, obviously saw the, the very little distinction between nature and themselves. Uh, there, there wasn't there wasn't the distinction that we see. We're civilized, and that's everything <laughs> is wild. For them, it was a continuum, and it was it was uh, flexible. It was permeable. Things could go back and forth. Things could change shape and become <laughs> become other than so. It's a very interesting archaeological and paleontological field, um, and that's where we start. And of course, that's where we Homo sapiens sapiens started. Well, I am highly skeptical because I have seen in my over my lifetime the experts find out. Oh well, we thought it was this, but now. But yet they state it like this is absolute fact. We know this is a fact. And then a couple of generations and more scientists say, well, now we know this is what the truth is. So whenever I'm reading anything about this, I take it with a grain of salt. Well, there's more to come. <laughs> but you know what I found uh, interesting? Because I, uh, I haven't actually been to these caves in Altamira in Spain and Lascaux in France. You basically need a special passports yeah, so yeah, I have yeah. not seen them in person I've seen pictures but what I did not know uh, there was this um, and I forgot his diamond was his name and he said these men men assume, doing these paintings knew these animals so well there was one that even depicted tear ducks yes I was I'd never heard that before yes. and and <laughs> the other thing that's remarkable is that Many of these paintings are are ten or twelve feet off the ground. They they must have had structures elaborated to, to do the painting. By the way, you said the men, and, <laughs> and uh, part of what <laughs> this book uh, challenges is the notion: Well, who's doing this? Only men? Uh, why? Uh, that is our reflex. We've it's it permeated our culture, and one of the things that that hunting, a cultural history, tries to uh, make clear is um, the narrative is much much more complicated, uh, and the roles of men and women were much more flexible and permeable and interchangeable. Uh, as they're now becoming in our own day. It took us a long time (laughs) to go through a passage of, well, men do this and women do that, and that's the beginning and end. It's not that simple. And I was glad to read that. And 
Because I would imagine that a book like Hunting would mostly appeal to men. Oh, I want that book. I want to know this. And probably less so to women. But your co-author is a woman. Yes, she is. And a hunter. And a hunter. (laughs) And a hunter. So uh, that's one uh, factor, perhaps, in the fact that your book is more open-minded about who these cave painters were. Oh, indeed. I mean, though we don't, we don't spend a lot of time analyzing that because it's, you know, it, it's pretty. There are things that we will probably never know, uh, like did women do this too? Um, so we don't spend a lot of time with that. But but it, it is important to set the stage for for saying that among other things, the history of hunting demonstrates that um, that. The notion of man the hunter has justified misogyny and patriarchy uh, for dec- for generations, for millennia, and 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 we challenge that 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 in this day and age that we now should know better that that in, in fact uh, women are fully capable of violence <laughs> <laughs> and men are fully capable of being loving and kind and and. Um, and we have the capacity, each of us, to be both a good guy and a bad guy. <laughs> Remind uh, listeners that my guest is Jan Desard. His book is Hunting a Cultural History. And uh, I was impressed that um, the famous artist Pablo Picasso, when he saw Altamira, and he said, Picasso is reported to have exclaimed, we have invented nothing new. After Altamira, all is decadence. <laughs> now, that's a little exaggerated, I yes. would say. <laughs> but uh, you say that uh, feminist researchers are up against a formidable body of evidence and insight marshaled by the male anthropological establishment. Yes. Now, um, you mentioned that women can be violent and men can be kind. And when I was reading your book... I realized I've got a hunter, my next-door neighbor, and I've seen him out there um, cleaning up antlers. Elk. I found out there were mm. elk antlers because I went over to talk to him about it. And he is the nicest guy. He loves animals. And he was cleaning these elk antlers. And uh, he has a truck with uh, a law enforcement insignia on it. Mm. And he works for the California uh, Fish and Wildlife. Uh-huh. And he is a um, uh, a lieutenant is his title oh. there, and uh, a game warden. He is a game yeah. warden. You're absolutely right. And so I I had uh, I enjoyed getting to ask him questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask. He's my next door neighbor. I just know he's a nice guy, uh, and he values physical fitness because he wants his. He teaches at the academy. He's at the academy at Butte College. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know Butte College had any such an academy. Yeah. And uh, I thought, golly, he, uh, he lives the lifestyle. He loves animals, but he also loves hunting. Right. And he killed this elk with a bow and arrow. Mm. I, these are things that I, I uh, was so glad that your book piqued my curiosity about this wonderful next-door neighbor that <laughs> I have. And I'm thinking that that's probably true, that people who might not ordinarily think they were interested in hunting read your book and say, oh, I'd like to know more about them. Well, there is much more to know. I mean, this is a this, this is a compressed history, obviously, and you know, two hundred and some pages. It's it's difficult to cover everything. But one of the things that 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 is important in our minds to start with from the beginning, from the Stone Age, uh, is 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 to is to make the argument, and it is an argument. It's not. I mean, people can disagree with us. Um, that, that really from the beginning, hunting was surrounded by, a, by, by ambivalence um, on the part There's of— There's a lot of that in your book. Yes, of course. <laughs> a lot of that. And, and, and that the, our, our ancestors, and one might see this in interpreting the cave paintings themselves and the fluidity that I mentioned at the beginning, um, that, that hunters— in some sense, the act of hunting is an act of violence. You're killing a, a, a warm-blooded animal, uh, and and 
in the community of non-hunters, one is given to wonder, well, if he's if he or she is doing that, what might they do to me, or what might they do in the in the in the in the village or in the in the band? What kind of person would do this? And so, from the as near as we can tell from the anthropological and archaeological record, uh, that, that hunting was surrounded by a set of rituals that that we draw the analogy to basic training for war. Uh, that that you're you're trained to do something that is not acceptable in broader society and civil society, um, and you go through rituals to to separate your daily life from the hunt or from the war, um, and the rituals in 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 hunter gatherer societies included rituals on the return. Now you come back to civilization. A changed human being. You're no longer going to be violent. You're no longer, you know, um, and that that suggests uh, the continuation, as far as we can tell from the record, including to this very day, uh, that uh, one of the critiques of hunting is that it induces violence and mayhem and all kinds of antisocial behavior amongst hunters. So the evidence and <laughs> your anecdotal evidence of your neighbor is, well, no, he's an ordinary human being that's, you know, <laughs> he's not bloodlust and, and, and bloodthirsty or... He loves his dog. He loves he his He takes do- his dog with him when he goes out for a run or a walk. Sure. Yeah. Um, but there is that ambivalence, as there is, unfortunately or fortunately, as the case may be, uh, there's ambivalence about returning war heroes. You know, We've certainly seen that. Uh, yeah, and the PSTD and all of that of the combatants themselves. There, so and part of the hunting ritual was always uh, allaying the anxiety and the ambivalence in the hunter himself or herself, thanking the animal for the gift rather than the theft uh, of a life. Um, so that that's an important thing to recognize. Uh, uh, and it is important for hunters to recognize that uh, that they're under scrutiny, uh, that non-hunters are are concerned uh, uh, about the behavior of hunting and what it what it what it accompanies. Uh, and th- the point here in in the book, among other things, is to say no hunters are are you know ordinary normal human beings. Well, let's. Uh, kind of fast forward a little bit from the hunter-gatherers of the Stone Age to Europe when uh, there are groups of people for, and I'd like to ask you, what were their reasons for coming to this country? They come, say, over on the Mayflower, and what was the motivation for a lot of Europeans to come to this new world? Well, they were fleeing persecution, uh, I think, first and foremost. Uh, Once they got here... uh, they were quick to report. Well, they didn't have internet, so the, <laughs> the reporting back home wasn't quick. But, but they were they were quick to observe uh, the the extraordinary riches, uh, not simply of game, uh, but also of of timber of of trees, which building boats and so on in Europe, and agriculture in Europe had essentially you know, eliminated vast forests. Uh, and they were running out of, they were running out of good straight logs to make their ship masts and so on. So this was a, a cornucopia. And of course, they thought it was an empty land because the Indians didn't treat the land the way the Europeans did. The Europeans manicured it and trimmed it and da 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 and Put fences up and 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 made property of it, whereas the 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 natives, the indigenous people, uh, though they had territorial claims and understandings, uh, the their customs were that everybody had a right to pass and repass, to come and go, uh, that 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 ownership was not was not a thing, um, and, and of course. When the Europeans began to dislodge and force uh, the indigenous people further and further away from their own homelands, 
uh, conflict arose between uh, the various Indian nations uh, uh, and, and so on. So it was a, it was a struggle. Well, we see pictures of uh, the pilgrims and with their muskets. And I had no idea that the inventor of the cotton gin, Eli Whitney, <laughs> played a role in the musket becoming obsolete. Yep. How is that possible? Well, <laughs> uh, we're a tool-making species. Um, there are very few generalizations that I, that I want to you know, indulge in, but one— one that I'm confident of is that uh, we, we tinker and we change and we try to improve, often with disastrous results. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, and, and by the way, uh, uh, again, unfortunately, warfare has been uh, the occasion for enormous innovation and development. Um, it's a sad fact that we can't. <laughs> We, we can't find something else to spur innovation. But, but uh, yes, Whitney, he developed a system of, of creating interchangeable parts, which made it possible. Because to, muskets were handmade. Muskets were all handmade. And, and, if, if, and, if, and they not only were handmade, but they were really, really difficult to repair uh, because you'd have to go back to the original craftsman who would who had fashioned it. Uh, and uh, so the interchangeable parts uh, made it possible to begin mass production. And it went from firearms to bicycles to automobiles to, well, to everything. Sewing machines? Sewing Because I remember my grandmother's sewing machine that was pedal operated. That's right. The Singer sewing machine. They're still using Singer sewing machines, uh, by the way. Uh, in the sweatshops in, in Asia, for example, <laughs> unfortunately. My guest is Jan Desard, and he has written a cultural history of hunting. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wiegman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Jan Desard, who has written a history of hunting. And we've gotten up to the point now, because you start back in the Stone Age, we've gotten up to the point where uh, Europeans have come to this new world. And one thing that um, is just sad to read of the massacre of the buffalo, the bisons on the plains, and this gun that you were just talking about that could be mass-produced, facilitated this massacre. I don't know if I'm using the right word. Well, this, uh, but I was just, your book gives the quantity of these poor animals that were just it's, slaughtered. It's a horrendous story um, <laughs> within a matter literally of decades, post-Civil War, between 1860 and, and uh, 1890. Millions of buffalo were reduced to a remnant of 30 or 40. Millions. Millions. Yes. And they might keep the hides, but uh, they also cut out the tongues. Tongues and hides were the, were the valuable uh, parts of the animal. The rest was, was pretty much left to rot. And you quote a guy and says in his diary that that's how we kept count of how many we killed, by cutting out their tongues and counting the yep. tongues. Yep. Oh, my gosh. And then somebody told me, it wasn't in your book, but uh, that 
they could kill them more if they, by train, shot from trains. Yes. And, yeah. and could they could kill more buffalo that way. Yeah. And I imagine, oh, they were on horseback and and the buffalo maybe no, had a the, bit of a chance. But the, no. the indigenous, the Plains Indians used horseback uh, very efficiently, by the way. Um, there's speculation that's mentioned in the book that that had the Europeans never got here, that that, that the, the indigenous people may have, over a longer period of time, to be sure, may have severely reduced the bison population as well. We know, we know for a fact uh, that the, the the megafauna of North America, um, the the woolly mammoth and the giant beaver, and by giant, I mean giant, 125, 100, 200-pound beaver, uh, and, and so on, were all driven extinct uh, within a thousand years of the arrival of Homo sapiens on this continent. Uh, so from about 13,000 years to 10,000 years, uh, uh, just a, a wave of of extinctions occurred uh, to these, you know, huge animals, saber-toothed tigers and things like that. But you have to go to a museum of natural history to see their their skeletons mounted and so on. And we know about these huge creatures that died out and that things changed, and now things are all the same. And your book makes that point. No, there's constant evolution, if yeah, I want to use that word. Change constant change of this balance. Yes. Um, now, there's <laughs> something that I also was kind of surprised to hear, that you don't just go down, pay your money, and you get a license, hunting license. And, for example, you mention in your book that prospective hunters in Germany must pass this exam, <laughs> and they get a handbook with more than 200 pages that a hunter is tested on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 uh, the description of the uh, of the hunter uh, course that that Germans have to pass uh, it gave me a flashback to my PhD prelims. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are two volumes, uh, about two hundred pages each, so it's a total almost of four hundred pages. Uh, the first volume is devoted to firearms and 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 all of the technical variations of what calibers and differences between rifles and shotguns and all of that sort of stuff that you're tested on. And the second volume is 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 basically a natural history course in in wildlife. What how to identify species, how to identify the sex of of of, of an animal species, uh, what their life habits are and and so on. And you have to, you're tested on all of that. Uh, so you don't just walk in and put your money down and they no, give you the license. Uh, no. <laughs> now, speaking, of, speaking of putting the money down, uh, the money that people pay for these licenses, uh, if, if people are buying fewer licenses, there's less income from those licenses. Uh, are there consequences of that? Yes, there are, and they are mounting because, as the book makes clear, uh, the num in the United States, but also in in in, in Western Europe, uh, the the number of hunters is is dramatically declining. Uh, there's been a little blip with COVID uh, because people didn't have other things to do with their time. And in fact, my neighbor mentioned that yeah, that yeah. one of the things about COVID is people got more hunting licenses. Right, and they went to the parks, and mm -hmm. there was a because you couldn't go indoors or stay indoors to or go to football games or basketball games or so on. So you go to parks and fish and hunt and so on, and it it's too soon to tell whether. That was just a blip mm -hmm. in the longer period, uh, secular t trend of going down. Or if people will stick with it. Yeah, it, and it, it, we just don't know. Um, our projection is, our best guess is, is that it was just a, a, a temporary blip because the, the, the social changes that are going on in, in, in Europe and, and in the United States and in other places in the world as well, um, are, are headed in the direction of, 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 of fewer hunters, less social support for hunting, um, 
uh, in part because of the rise of animal rights um, and 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 so on and 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 also importantly uh, because uh, particular and this is particularly true in the United States uh, increasing ambivalence uh, about guns yeah um, yeah and uh, I mean fewer people are buying guns although that changed also in the last couple of years with uh, with a surge in, in, in gun purchases, but in, in, and also new gun owners as opposed to old. Uh, but it is still the case that um, in the last 25 years or so, we've gone from a, a, a country in which a, almost half the population had a, a firearm in the house, in the, in the household, and it's now down to about a third. My guest is uh, Jan Desard. He has written a book, A Cultural History of Hunting, and um, we were just kind of saying that um, we think we can come up with answers to solve the problems, and then we find, oh, that, that didn't work too well. For example, we think, oh, we'll just remove predators like uh, wolves and coyotes and mountain lions. We'll just get rid of those. And then we, you say we struggle with the legacy of that short-term thinking. Yes, uh, because what happened is uh, when you got when you get rid of the top predators, uh, that that the the ecological system that supports the game animals that you're interested in breaks down because they're and we see this in the, in the United States and and also in Europe, although Europe manages their wildlife differently than the United States, uh, but um, there are too many deer. Uh, and they're they're ruining the the forests. They're over browsing. Uh, they're reducing regeneration, uh, so that uh, uh, yeah, it, 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 they're and and by the way, with a, with a lot of deer uh, competing with other animals, uh, including birds and so on. If you remove all of the underbrush and so on, because the deer have eaten it. Uh, there are fewer places for birds to nest, and and so it it it's a cascade. Get rid of the top predator, and all kinds of things happen that uh, turn out to be not so hot. Well, I don't speak for other vegetarians, but being a vegetarian and an animal lover, and it would be easy to say, oh, the hunters are the bad guys. But you say uh -uh. in your book that hunters are the true conservationists. Uh, that's a that's true in 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 a in a particular way, Nancy. Um, the money that hunters pay for licenses, but also for guns and ammunition, uh, which are taxed, is a major source of conservation funding. Um, and hunters were uh, were a major political force in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century to stop the overhunting, uh, mostly overhunting because of market, to, to get the buffalo tongues, to get the buffalo hides, uh, and, and so on. Uh, by the way, buffalo hide is, uh, is, is, is used still today as, as, as belts in, 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 in factories that, that turn. It's this extremely strong leather, um, uh, and so it was highly prized. Uh, not just to keep warm uh, on, in your buggy, but also to to run the pulleys that were, you know, in the in the old mills before electricity, using water power and so on. Um, so, it, the, the 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 sport hunters essentially eliminated market hunting uh, by legislation. In the, and by market hunting, you mean killing all the buffalo to make money. And 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 uh, passenger prisons and and so on. All, all of that over overkill uh, was essentially eliminated or made illegal, and with the imposition of hunting seasons and limits on how many deer you could kill in a year, or how many ducks, or 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 what have you. Uh, so in in that sense, uh, hunters have been a major factor in restoring wildlife and not just wild game because if you if you 
again, if you don't, if you don't overkill the deer and so on, um, then you get the diversity of biotic uh, species, including trees and 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 so on. So so yes, they were a major factor, uh, but but now. Uh, Given the decline in hunters, uh, it, it becomes a harder, a harder claim for hunters to make. And one of the points of this book is to urge hunters to um, to once again unite with bird lovers and animal lovers uh, and bird watchers, and people bird who just watchers, want to go out and watch these animals. Uh, to unite with them to 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 preserve our our ecology. Preserve nature. Well, a lot of people go to Africa for that to just look at the wildlife. But there was a story that uh, I was horrified, and not for the reason I would expect. And this was the story of a dentist, Dr. Palmer, and a lion named Cecil. And I, I, I don't like to see people kill, you know, the elephant for their tusks. But I was horrified for a different reason when I heard Dr. Palmer's story. What happened to him? Well, he was <laughs> he was hounded and and uh, Why? vilified. Why? Who was upset with him? Uh, it was mostly animal rights activists. Uh, but but it but it. <laughs> what did he do that upset them? Um. <laughs> this lion named Cecil. Yeah. His... Well, it turns out. That we give the account uh, as soon as I, we could tell the official account of of of, of what went on. Um, Cecil was a was a tourist attraction. The lion. Um, He's the lion. The lion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and um, was obviously a, a a very very fine specimen. Although he was now aging out. Uh, and and one of the one of the things that happens when the hierarchy uh, there's no social security in nature, <laughs> no <laughs> Medicare, retire and draw no Medicare, no retirement benefits. Uh, he was baited to come out of a reserve, um, and and that is legal in the country uh, in which he paid to hunt. Um, and he, unlike your neighbor, uh, he meaning Dr. Palmer. Yeah, unlike your neighbor, uh, shot the lot Cecil with a with an arrow, but did not mortally wound uh, Cecil. And it took uh, many hours of tracking. Uh, and, and Palmer was not the tracker. Uh, the, the the indigenous people who guided him uh, did all the heavy work. Uh, and was finally dispatched mercifully with a rifle, not with the bow. Um, and and it, it, the episode revealed a awakened, reawakened, re-energized, uh, use whatever word you want there, uh, the, the ambivalence. Why do you kill a lion? It wasn't, you know, why? Uh, it's you didn't. He didn't kill the lion to eat. Obviously, if if he was starving to death and killed a lion, I don't think anybody would have said anything. But uh, it, this was vanity, uh, and it, and and the ambivalence that I mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, was, you know, inflamed, uh, and and in part because. I think if this had happened a hundred years ago, he would have been valorized as a hero, oh, yeah. taking on the mighty. Yeah, and, how macho is that? To yeah. Kill a lion? Yeah, um, and uh, but times have changed, and the culture has changed, and our attitudes toward animals, wildlife in particular, has also changed. Uh, and and I would argue, though I'm a hunter, <laughs> uh, I would argue it's a change for the better. Um, that, that we do need to be more respectful and more thoughtful, more ethical in, in the ways in which we treat one another and in, and in the ways in which we treat, uh, in which we treat a, a wildlife. I totally agree with that. The point that I became upset with, um, 
we don't always kill humans who kill another human. <laughs> but here's a human who killed an animal, and I don't go along with that at all. But there are people, he had threats on his life. They were going to kill a human and his family as well. That, that just, um, it, it, it diminishes these activists in my mind that they would make threats on this man's life. I mean, I, I agree. I don't agree with what he did. I wish he hadn't done that. But I don't think he deserved being murdered for it. <laughs> no, certainly not. And, and, and in fact, he broke no laws. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, not a criminal, according yeah. to our legal system. Yeah. Well, or, or their Zim- legal system. Zimbabwe's yeah, legal Zimbabwe's system. Zimbabwe's legal system. Uh, and, and I think he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been convicted. He was properly licensed and, 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 and equipped and so on. I don't think he committed any crime in our country either. My guest is a um, retired professor, <laughs> Jan Desard, and his book is Hunting a Cultural History. After a break, I'll be back with my guest, Jan Desard, and hear more about hunting. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wiegman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Jan Desard, who co-authored a book on a cultural history of hunting. So we went to Africa, and what are the big five uh, game animals in Africa that people want to, boy, if I could just get a, what, what are the five that are the well, most popular? Well, you know, the elephant, the lion, uh, the I forget. So you notice you name the lion first, which is what the dentist, Dr. Right, Palmer, right, right. went for the uh, lion. And, and yeah. there's a, a couple of large ungulates, the musk ox and so on. I, I'm not a big game hunter. Uh, yeah. And, well, and uh, I am, I'm not a trophy hunter. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of trophies then, let's come back to the United States. And in the past, say, if you were a fisherman and you might catch a fish the size of a car, and that was what? kind of the expectation was. But then younger people who start fishing, they don't know that maybe their granddad bought a, caught a fish the size of a car. And so they are happy with catching a fish the size of a table or a couch. And you say that these baselines are changing, but the people involved don't know it because they don't know, they don't know. what the game was like yes. in the past. And it's a, it's a problem that goes beyond, uh, beyond uh, wildlife, fishing and terrestrial animals. The shifting baselines, mm-hmm. you know, you you don't miss something that you've that you never, never seen. That yes. you never had. Yes, if you've had. never seen it, you and, don't. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, the, the illustration of the fishing is striking because it literally, in the same place in Florida, over <coughs> a span of about 50 years, you go from, and it's the same picture and the same dock. The same <laughs> location. Not the same people, obviously. Yeah. Uh, grinning broadly at the at their catch, and their catch, by the time we get to the present day, their catch is, is, is basically what they would have thrown back in the water and been disappointed with catching uh, uh, 25 years ago. Saying, oh, it was a lousy day. We only caught minnows. Uh, and, and yet here they are grinning ear to ear. Happy to have, happy to have had a wonderful time. What granddad was like, ah, oh, throw that one back. Uh, the, yes, and... and, and that's a problem for educating people about what we've lost or what we are losing. Uh, well, um, you make the point in your book 
that environmentalists mistrust hunters, but environmentalists and hunters have some things in common, some interest that things they're interested in, like protecting public land. They both want clean water. We all want clean water. Uh, protection of wildlife habitats. Mm-hmm. So this environmentalist and hunters agree that these things are important. Yes. But there's mistrust, environmentalist and hunters. There is. And, and it, it's of relatively recent origin. I think we can begin to date it with, with the first Earth Day in, in the early 1970s. Um, uh, in, in part because of the changing attitudes toward wildlife that, that we just briefly talked about now. Um, this is so-called Bambi syndrome of, you know, and the ambivalence that, that, that hunters are greeted by. Uh, and so there's an edginess uh, th- that was introduced. Uh, for example, proposals to save uh, uh, wildlife reserves uh, which in the old days hunters would have absolutely approved of, but now today they come with the stipulation that there's no hunting. So hunters feel like the environmentalists are trying to move them on, to the margins, to the margins, to the less good places to hunt, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're not particularly happy with with in, in that version of environmentalism. Uh, and of course, the environmentalists are looking at, at hunters, uh, and and much of it with characterizations or caricatures of hunters as pot-bellied, beer-swilling, you know, gap-toothed yahoos, uh, which we try to make clear that all the evidence, <laughs> not just your anecdotal evidence, but all the evidence suggests, uh, you know, that that there isn't much difference between hunters and non-hunters uh, in terms of, you know probity and honesty and in uh, 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 another another piece that I book that I've written on on hunting uh, I I make the claim that hunters are, are no more disreputable than congressmen and congresswomen <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we don't have to use some contemporary <laughs> examples <laughs> well let's go to the uh, bullets if you might, if we can, um, a friend of mine recently was given this rifle from that had been used in World War II. This friend said, "Here, I'd like you to have this rifle." And my friend checked into the cost of bullets, <laughs> and he was shocked. Yeah, yeah. It's... And so I wondered then, after reading your book, was it the difference in lead and plastic for bullets? Because you make the point that bullets were made of lead. And that people are saying, you know, that's not a good idea to be putting lead out there. Um, so, what is that controversy? Well, the controversy is uh, partly about price, uh, but it's also partly about tradition. That lead is a superior ballistic property. Its weight and its malleability and so on. It's it, 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 there's a reason why it's been used for hundreds of years. Uh, to to make uh, projectiles because uh, you can shape it and you know it's malleable it, it doesn't ruin the barrel uh, when you shoot it uh, a stronger or harder material like steel you need special barrels that don't get don't get ruined um, and and the demand for Non-lead ammunition is lower, so there's less money to be made, um, less economies of scale involved, and so on. So, there, so we don't want to put lead out there in the environment because of its properties that are not healthy, if I want to say it that way. And yet plastic, we look at these pictures of plastic islands in the ocean, and we think, oh, no, we don't want to put more plastic out there yeah, either. Yeah. It, it it's the plastic is used really uh, only in shotguns, um, not in not in rifles. Um, uh, uh, California is the only state that has banned the the use of lead ammunition for hunting. You can still use lead in, ammunition for target practice and in in you know designated areas and so on, but not for hunting. Uh, and and there are increasing number of states. 
uh, in, that, that uh, have selected areas where there is no, no, lead, no lead legally used. Uh, it is an environmental da danger. There, there, there are health implications for for the, the use of lead. Um, and <laughs> when I was uh, maybe t ten years old, eleven years old, I used to buy bulk lead uh, and melt it over the stove in a in a pot, breathing it in uh, to make sinkers for fishing. But we didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I was thrilled to be able to make my own sinkers and my own fishing lures and, and, and so on, uh, saving money and, you know, all of that sort of exciting stuff. Lead is, is toxic. Uh, it's toxic to human beings and it's toxic to – that's why there's no lead in gasoline. Um, <laughs> it's no good for you. Nationwide uh, – Lead ammunition is is forbidden for the pursuit of waterfowl, and that's been so since the since the two thousand sevens, nationwide. Uh, lead has been basically banned in all, in most of uh, the e EU countries, uh, and and now plastic in shotgun shells uh, is being banned in some uh, European countries. Uh, that's a. There is no organized movement yet in the United States uh, to to ban plastic, and that's going to be a heavy push uh, because the, the alternatives are few and far between. My guest is Jan Desard, and his book is a cultural history of hunting. And uh, I asked my neighbor, who's his girlfriend, also hunts. She's a tiny little thing, but she'd been in the military. So I thought, oh, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. Then the guns would be something familiar for her, perhaps. Um, but I said, uh, do you have any questions you'd like to ask the expert? And he said, well, what about the modern technology now, like the use of drones in hunting? And um, so he was wondering what you thought about that. Well, uh, <coughs> speaking of changing times. Excuse me. The uh, organization uh, th that I am on the board of called Orion the Hunters Institute uh, has been uh, – has taken a leadership role in urging states to ban the use of drones. Mm -hmm. He mentioned that, yeah. Uh, also uh, to ban at least during the hunting season uh, the use of, of uh, real-time cameras. Yeah, he mentioned that, yeah. Um, and the reason for that uh, is, is it violates uh, the norm which has been established for 100 years or so uh, on, on both, both the continent, the EU, and, and the, the North America, um, the, the idea of fair chase, of a level playing field, uh, that we are intellectually capable of creating weapons and methodologies that would overwhelm wildlife, as we saw in the 19th century when the technology was still pretty crude, by the way. Um, and so in order, in order to have things to hunt, <laughs> uh, you basically have to agree to tie one hand behind your back, uh, to, to limit, to, limit uh, to put things on a level playing field, to give the animal a legitimate probability of escape, uh, to minimize the number of, of wounded and crippled animals that are not recovered, um, and so on. That, and, and the technologies that are now available uh, uh, make the playing field not level at all, not level at all. And, and, and it, it ruins the sport. And it ruins the sport for those who choose to hunt fair chase. Uh, if somebody's coming in with, with drones and so on, and you're doing your own scouting and trudging along and so on, uh, you're at a disadvantage. Uh, and it, th that's not fair either. So 
uh, a code of conduct, an ethical hunting uh, co uh, code of conduct, is 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 part of a larger strategy of being an environmentally responsible, uh, and 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 it's also, to be honest, it's also a way of legitimizing the sport. That we're not just shooting at everything that moves. Um, that we are uh, we are controlling our impulses, uh, and 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 trying to trying to play fair and square. Uh, I was interested in a quote that you end your book because the person's name, an environmental philosopher named Paul Shepard, S H E P A R D, because uh, a few years ago, a woman named Sandy Shepard, spelled it that way, wrote a book about deer hunting in her family up at Mount, um, what was the name of that mountain that uh, that I was not familiar with, but northern people who live in uh, northern California, Mount Eddy. And these are bucktails, deer mm -hmm. from Mount Eddy. The title of her book is Skinning and Grinning. Uh -huh. Because it was an event for her family. I don't know that family. book. I have to, I'll have to look for it. <laughs> it's just a very sweet book. Um, but Tales of Deer Hunting on Mount Eddy in Northern California. And Sandy Shepard wrote Skinning and Grinning. Now, the Paul <laughs> Shepard in your book, you conclude. I don't think there's a relationship. <laughs> no, no, no. Two. I don't either. It's just no. that I remembered her book because it was the title Skinning and Grinning. Yes. And you quote Paul Shepard. What does the hunt actually do for the hunter? It confirms his continuity with the dynamic field of animal populations, his role in the complicated cycle of elements, and the patterns of flow of energy. Regardless of technological advance, man remains part of and dependent on nature. The necessity of signifying and recognizing this relationship remains. The hunter is our agent of awareness. Thank you for writing this book. You know, <laughs> I don't think as a non-hunter, a vegetarian, an animal lover, I don't think I, I wouldn't have thought a book on hunting would appeal to me, but it really caused me to do a lot of thinking. Good. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. My guest again has been Jan Desard. He is co-author of the book, Hunting a Cultural History. to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.